The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And in many ways, we'll go back to the 1980s and 1970s where there is no framework uh, governing the international relations with the Palestinians or the Palestinian-Israeli relation. I'm Heyman Hahn, Associate Editor at Lawfare. This is the Lawfare Podcast, November 3rd, 2023. Since Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th, the Israel-Hamas war has largely been fought in Gaza, a small strip of land along the border of the Mediterranean Sea. But farther inland, there's been an uptick in hostilities between Israelis and Palestinians in the Palestinian territory of the West Bank. Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem says that at least 13 Palestinian herding communities in the West Bank have been forcibly displaced since the beginning of the war due to Israeli settler violence and intimidation. And nearly 100 Palestinians in the territory are reported to have been killed since the war began by both Israeli military strikes as well as settler violence. The fraught relationship between the Israeli government, Israeli settlers, Palestinians, and the Palestinian Authority are not new. But in part because of those existing issues, the West Bank has the potential to expand and complicate the bounds of the Israel-Hamas war. And some might argue that that's already underway. To understand how the West Bank fits into the ongoing hostilities between Israel and Hamas, I spoke to Dan Byman from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, who is also Lawfare's foreign policy editor. Gaith Al-Omeri of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare Senior Editor and Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. We talked about the international law that currently governs the rules of engagement in the West Bank, the political responses of the Israeli government and other Arab states, and how West Bank dynamics will impact the broader outcomes of the Israel-Hamas war. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 3rd. The West Bank and the Israel-Hamas War. Before we zoom into the West Bank, though, I think it'd be helpful to start with an update on developments in the war more broadly since you were last on the podcast a few weeks ago. Dan, maybe could you tell us how the war has grown and evolved since the initial October 7th attack by Hamas and then the Israeli response since? Sure. So I'll say there's been significant change, but also in some ways less than many people feared or anticipated. So since the attacks, we've seen um, Israel conduct a uh, very broad and um, aggressive bombing campaign of Gaza. Uh, There's a mounting humanitarian crisis there. And there's only been a trickle of aid going into the Strip. In recent days, we've seen Israeli ground operations uh, begin in a more sustained and serious way. It's not the massive all-out invasion that was anticipated. Uh, Rather, it seems to be a slow but steady increase in the flow of ground forces that have entered Gaza from multiple directions focused on the northern part of the Strip. And as we're recording this podcast, uh, these are ongoing operations and seem to be something that's going to be sustained for quite some time. Uh, I would say two things that have not changed that are worth mentioning. Uh, One is the presence of large numbers of hostages. And that is something that was striking from the beginning of this conflict. And although a few have been released, there are still large numbers of hostages in Gaza. Uh, The second is there were concerns that this would lead to a much wider war. Uh, This remains a possibility. But this has not led the Lebanese Hezbollah in particular to join in the fray, although we have seen 
um, Hezbollah li uh, conduct limited attacks on Israel, as well as limited attacks by various Iranian allies, such as the Houthis in Yemen. This has also led to U.S. responses in the region, but the broader regional um, environment is certainly tense, but has not boiled over into a massive conflict. I mean, if, if I may add, uh, and I fully agree with Dan, if you look at it maybe from some of the regional and policy uh, uh, aspects, um, regionally we're starting to see much more unease uh, than we saw a couple of weeks ago. We're, you know, Today we just saw Bahrain, uh, the Bahraini parliament issue an unbinding resolution to basically expel the Israeli ambassador and cut economic relations. Jordan withdrew their uh, ambassador. So we're starting to see the pressure mounting on Arab countries. From a policy point of view, it seems that today there are, you know, three policy, at least we're coming from the United States, three policy objectives, maintaining the diplomatic space for Israel to do its uh, military operations. But uh, to do that, the U.S. right now is focusing on uh, issues that relate to humanitarian uh, delivery, whether it's delivery of good, exit of uh, foreign nationals. Uh, just today, there were news that Israel will allow uh, fuel to hospitals. But also, we're starting to hear a lot of conversation about the day after, what will happen after the war. And uh, Secretary Blinken is going to be in the region starting tomorrow to specifically discuss the issue with regional actors. Yeah, thanks for that. And I, I mean, I think that brings us well into the West Bank part of this conversation, too, because, of course, historically, a lot of what happens in the West Bank tends to cause ripple effects in the Arab community of, in terms of their views on um, the Israel-Palestine conflict. So could, could one of you explain what's been happening in the West Bank since October 7th and maybe how that differs or doesn't differ from what has usually happened there? What I would point out is that the West Bank was already volatile before October 7th, that 2022 was an exceptionally deadly year. And even before the latest violence, 2023 was on track to be significantly worse. And this violence uh, had multiple causes, one of which uh, included more aggressive settler action. There was uh, uh, Palestinian resistance to the Israeli occupation. There were uh, terrorist attacks. And there was a very tough Israeli response. All this has increased dramatically since October 7th with uh, Palestinians uh, conducting demonstrations and protests. Uh, several settler groups have done pogroms and killed um, ordinary Palestinians on the West Bank. The Palestinian security forces have been arresting and killing demonstrators, as have Israeli forces. So this has not boiled over into a third intifada or massive conflict, but we're seeing very high levels of violence. Well over 100 people have died, and that number seems only likely to increase um, in response to, as Palestinians on the West Bank protest what they're seeing in Gaza. And if I may just punctuate a couple of points that Dan uh, mentioned, one is the issue of settler violence, and it is becoming uh, extremely worrying, so much so that it's becoming actually one of the top uh, issues of concern, not only for U.S. Uh, officials, but also for other international officials. Uh, and this requires a strong action from Israel, and we have not seen such action. Actually, we have seen some uh, Israeli... Uh, cabinet ministers basically almost abetting this kind of uh, uh, violence. Another point that uh, Dan mentioned, which is the Palestinian Authority itself. What's been interesting is uh, we have starting to see not only demonstrations against Israel, but also demonstrations against the Palestinian Authority. Uh, at least in one instance, uh, a member of the Palestinian security forces, you know, quit on TikTok. Uh, so these are warning signs of uh, where things can go, not only vis-a-vis -vis Israel, but towards also the very shaky uh, Palestinian uh, authority. Maybe uh, two other points. One is as it relates to the Palestinian authority. We saw a very disturbing uh, uh, in, uh, development just yesterday when the Israeli finance minister, Smotrich, basically said, he will not be transferring uh, uh, money that Israel is obligated to transfer to the Palestinian Authority once a month. There is a sense that some members of the Israeli cabinet actually want to push for a collapse of the Palestinian Authority. He was uh, contradicted by the defense minister, but uh, we're seeing this uh, trend going on. The one thing I would keep a close eye on is Jerusalem. So far, East Jerusalem, so far it has been, uh, you know, quiet in the same sense that the West Bank has been quiet. There is tension, but it has not boiled over 
into mass demonstrations yet uh, you know every friday is a potential uh, flashpoint with the friday prayer particularly in the aqsa mosque the temple mount uh, so that continues to be one of the most area biggest areas uh, of concern to keep an eye on yeah definitely and i definitely want to return to that and the the post-war Palestinian Authority question a little bit later. But before that, I want to go back to the the settler violence and the uptick of that and and how that factors into war, law of war um, constraints here. Scott, maybe can I turn to you to ask, is this something that is allowed in response to the Hamas attack on October 7th, is this something that is kind of a part of the war or is this kind of outside of the bounds of war that's happening in the West Bank? Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, you know, I think a lot of it depends on what this is that we're talking about. And a lot of it also hinges back to the end of the foundational question of what the status of the West Bank is and what legal obligations flow from that, which isn't clear and is the subject of some disagreement between Israel and the international community and to some extent the United States straddling between those two. The international community has long viewed the West Bank as occupied territory. That is a term of art in international law. It means it stems with it a number of obligations that the Israelis in the eyes of the international community have in regards to how it handles that territory as the occupying power. It's actually a pretty well-defined area of international law, um, as it's something that's covered by Geneva Conventions to some extent, although there's actually a related question as to how much they apply here. Um, Customary international law is developed around or is recognized around the occupation rules. International law applies well. So while there's certainly lots of gray areas and open questions, there's a defined area and, and set of rules here. Israel has never 100% conceded that this territory is occupied. In fact, they, they've strongly suggested it's not. Um, there's a variety of legal theories they've advanced as to why they have legal claims to some, if not all, of portions of the West Bank um, that were taken during the 67 war, or taken control of during the 67 war. Those are minority views. They're views that are strongly held among certain Israeli legal scholars. Uh, certainly Israeli government officials have have kind of referenced them. Um, there are certain advocates uh, that support that view out in the world, but they're a relative minority. The vast majority of, international, of the international community, including most foreign governments, take the position that the UN Security Council resolved, essentially, that the West Bank is occupied territory in UN Security Council Resolution 242, issued in 1967, and in subsequent resolutions has been maintained a pretty consistent position on that. I think that's an accurate description of the Security Council's views, although, again, there are kind of minority legal theories that say, no, we have to read this language in a particular context or in a particular way that's not as determinative as it may, not, it may seem. The United States has kind of straddled and oscillated a little bit on this its position on this issue. There's since at least 1978, there was for many years until just a few years ago, a legal opinion issued by the Office of the Legal Advisor at the State Department that reached the conclusion um, that, in fact, the settlements were illegal, looked at the law of occupation, um, looked at the way the settlements are handled. Uh, and they said, essentially, look, the law of occupation doesn't allow you to start permanently claiming territory and transferring populations and acting as if you actually have this territory as part of your national state. You're only supposed to be doing things temporarily, and you are obligated to do things to protect the local population and to avoid doing things that permanently disrupt their conduct of their lives that are not required for reasons of military necessity that is motivating the occupation in the first place. So it's really hard to square a lot of settlement activities and a lot of what happened to the West Bank with that vision of, of occupation law. The United States had that view in this 1978 legal opinion issued by Herb Hounsel, who was the legal advisor at the time during the Carter administration. President Reagan briefly walked back from it early in his time in office. Then his advisors kind of rolled back that position a little bit and said, well, we're not saying that it's not illegal. But we're also just not saying that it is that it is illegal. We're kind of adopting a, a neutral position that a number of subsequent administrations have echoed at various points. Um, but the United States for a long time, if you really push them on it, they said, look, these are are occupied territories, at least a substantial portion of them. Maybe there are areas where Israelis have stronger claims than others. Um, there may be certain arguments, but at least a substantial portion are occupied territories. And they were referred to as the occupied Palestinian territories by the US government fairly regularly. The Trump administration reversed this view, withdrew that opinion formally uh, a few years into its run. 
they essentially said that the Obama administration had elevated this opinion that this was never the U.S. and and had said in their kind of closing days in office, the West Bank settlements are illegal. The United States, the Obama administration didn't quite do that, but that was kind of the way that Secretary Pompeo framed it at the time. Um, And they said they're restoring our long position of not taking a legal position. And they reportedly crafted a long internal legal opinion justifying this view that Settlements in the West Bank are not per se illegal under national law. It's never been released publicly, though, unlike the Hansel opinion, which has been public for, for a few decades. So we don't know exactly what the basis of that is. I can speculate on that. Um, but that's all a long way to say the legal regime that currently applies in the West Bank, um, because the Biden administration has walked back parts of that Trump administration shift, but not in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect push comes to stuff, they do see the West Bank as occupied in substantial parts, but they are careful about how they describe it and say, well, for the most part, this is disputed territory the parties need to resolve the status of through negotiations. But insofar as you accept that occupational law applies, settlements themselves are pretty foundationally probably illegal. Because again, you're not supposed to be permanently claiming and installing populations in that territory. And you're supposed to have an affirmative obligation to protect the livelihoods and the lives of the people who you are occupying, who are there in the first place. So from that perspective, all of these things are foundationally problematic. If you really have uh, a you know a case where you have settlers uh, or other people launching you know terror campaigns, threatening people with violence, and that's not being responded to, that would be not only a huge failure of occupation law, that would raise big questions about human rights law, um, international human rights law, even if you were to say the West Bank is part of the state of Israel or Israeli territory, because of course, Palestinians there still have human rights. But Israelis uh, play a little, uh, Israeli policy has often played a little bit of both sides about acknowledging and applying occupation law in practice without saying it's the official regime, but then using that as a in part as a justification to say, and this is why they don't have a full residence here, don't have a full bucket of human rights, because they are a population that is whose status is up in the air. And therefore, we're only treating them as occupied population, not as a human rights population. Foundationally, if there are security threats, Israel, I think most states would say Israel has international legal right to try and address those genuine security threats to the state of Israel and its nationals. And if that's what's happening, then you have a much stronger national legal case. But all the rest of this is operating on very fraught legal territory, which the Israelis are aware of and has, is not a new reality. That's been the reality really for the last several decades. Right. And according to Israeli human rights organization, Ben Salem, at least 13 herding communities have been displaced since the October attacks because of increased violence and threats. So I'm curious how has the is- Israeli government response differed between prior to the October 7th attack to, to now? Is it is it more punitive or is it more, I think Gates said earlier, abetting um, of certain decisions that settlers are making towards Palestinians? And, and how does, again, what are the obligations there from the Israeli government point of view towards the, the folks in the West Bank? So I would say I'd welcome Dan all right, to, to correct me on this. Uh, but you know, my sense is that most of the measures we're seeing in the West Bank over the last few weeks are of a kind similar to what's been happening in the West Bank for a very long time, but are happening at a tempo, at a scale, and with a degree of assertiveness um, in some cases that just doesn't usually come all in one push. Uh, and I have no doubt that is in part because people are upset over the Gaza attacks. Um, they are angry at perhaps Palestinians, rightfully or wrongfully, there might be an opportunistic element where people are taking advantage of the cover of the Gaza conflict to try and change some facts on the ground in the West Bank as well. Um, And there's a lot of motivations because, of course, there's a lot of different actors who are participating in this for not necessarily the same reason. As a legal matter, you know, again, all of these things really are foundationally problematic if you accept that it's occupied territory. But there are justifications the Israelis roll out to because again, they often say, well, no, we're abiding by occupation law. Even if we dispute whether it should apply, we abide by it generally. Uh, a classic example is the idea of displacing particularly herding communities or using farmlands for military exercises. This is a pretty longstanding Israeli practice. Um, it's been disputed and elevated to the Israeli Supreme Court. There are a number of Israeli Supreme Court decisions about it in different cases, some pushing back on military practices, others not. Um, but the essentially argument the Israeli government rolls out is saying, well, these are our Israeli troops need to train and practice. That's a milita- military necessity. And even if an occupying power uh, responsibilities, if we have those responsibilities, we are allowed to do things 
that we need to do to pursue military necessity and maintain security here. And this is part of that. And then the question becomes, well, how credible is that argument? How necessary is it to these fields? What's the return on military necessity, return on security that you're getting by permanently disrupting uh, or or doing potential substantial damage to the livelihood of these peoples who are you know, under your occupation? A lot of people come to different answers uh, on that solution. The Israelis have one. I think most people in the international community would reach the opposite conclusion, in at least some of these cases, saying, yeah, it's a hard case that these things are clearly justified by military necessity. At least it's a hard question. And when you're happening at scale and at a you know, a degree of, of uh, deliberateness um, as part of a, a frequent recurring pattern, then it particularly raises questions saying, well, is, this, is there legal pretext for uh, actions that are actually motivated by something that would otherwise be unlawful? You know, I mean, if I may just add that I can't add anything to the legal aspects of it, but if you wrap it in a political context, I mean, look, there are uh, very serious indications that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, is uh, losing control of his cabinet. And what we see is some kind of very conflicting uh, approaches to this uh, kind of issue. We know for a fact that uh, the Shimbet, that's the Israeli counterterrorism uh, unit or the uh, agency, has warned uh, the cabinet, the political echelon, that this uh, settler violence is actually risking uh, triggering a major security breakdown in the West Bank. This has been reported. Uh, we know it from talking to people as well. Yet uh, Netanyahu uh, finds himself uh, unable or maybe unwilling, uh, I don't know, to control um, some of his more extreme uh, members of cabinet to basically back his uh, security officials when it comes to this. So what we're seeing really is just this both mixed signals, but also mixed policies coming from the from Israeli officials when it comes to this. I would only add that the Bedouins suffered disproportionately in this context, which is they are highly vulnerable because by nature their property rights um, are less fixed than um, other Palestinians and even in general Palestinians in the West Bank have uh, encountered severe property rights issues. Uh, but they also do not have much support from uh, Palestinian authorities. So they're a highly vulnerable community, and it's not surprising to me that uh, at least some settlers who are usually quite opportunistic in finding ways to expand their presence are taking advantage of the current uh, crisis to uh, go after this community to try to displace them further. Mm -hmm. So is what's happening in the West Bank rightfully seen as a kind of front in this Israel-Hamas war or some sort of side battle that's happening? Or is it meaningfully separate from what's happening in the Gaza Strip? And relatedly, what what would happen if the the violence kind of increased a lot more between settlers and Palestinians who are living there? Would that bring people into the conflict and make them legitimate war targets and combatants in this war? Let, let me start out by saying that I think it's a bit of both in terms of the relationship between the Gaza conflict and the West Bank. The West Bank has long had its own issues. It has a different government than Gaza with the Palestinian Authority. Um, that government has a mixed relationship with uh, Israeli government, at times being critical, but at times effectively acting as the Israeli police on the West Bank. There are succession issues in terms of who's going to take over for, our, for Mahmoud Abbas that are not present in the Hamas context. And there's much more international support for this government. So the problems they've had with Israel have an entirely different context. Having said that, uh, there is, of course, a very strong sense of nationalism and community among Palestinians. And when uh, Palestinians are dying in significant numbers in Gaza and uh, Israel is being blamed, Palestinians in the West Bank are responding to that. And there are certainly family connections, uh, but just also a strong sense of community. And so the local problems on the West Bank, the ones that people were focused on before October 7th, still exist. But many of these are greatly increased by the um, anger Palestinians on the West Bank feel for what's happening next door in Gaza. And though, I mean, I, I would say that it's uh, interesting that uh, this is, I mean, first of all, I mean, while this is a qualitatively and quantitatively different uh, uh, war in Gaza than we've seen in the past, uh, we've seen in previous wars, while people in the West Bank uh, do grow restive, 
it has not uh, in the past uh, spilled over into a major security breakdown. Uh, and we're seeing something similar uh, so far. Now, of course, things can change uh, overnight, yet I think one of the most remarkable and interesting, and I have to add uh, least understood uh, developments, is the fact that we have not yet had a complete breakdown and a new and a truly new active front uh, in the West Bank. This could change. This could change as a result of developments in Gaza. This could change as a results of developments in the West Bank, be it, bank, be it whether it's settler violence or violence from the Israeli army, or it could change uh, because of Palestinian uh, clashes with their own uh, security forces. But as of yet, it's been quite remarkable that uh, the West Bank, uh, in very relative terms, remains uh, quiet and by and large under uh, under control in a, from a security point of view. Just to, to kind of tie up on the, the legal question here about whether there's a legal status change because of the war in Gaza and the West Bank. I don't think there is any sign that that these sorts of relationships that would need, be needed to have any sort of change actually have ha- exist. Um, although you know that could change with time. Protesting in the West Bank is not does not make you any sort of combatant, even if Hamas somehow were present in the West Bank and pursuing operations. Um, throwing rocks does not make you a combatant. Um, there's sometimes a dispute about that as to whether that constitutes kind of lethal force of the way that you're participating as a soldier in a fight. But mm-hmm. I think the vast majority of people would say, no, that that's really not lethal force. That's not what people think of when you're becoming a combatant. You, you really, if you're going to actually engage in hostilities, that's the only way that a civilian is supposed to be elevated to the level that they can actually be a combatant, and meaning they can be a target of military operations. Until you cross that line, civilians are supposed to be protected. They're supposed to be distinguished from the targets of military action. That doesn't mean military action does not sometimes kill them tragically, but it is only supposed to arise as collateral damage to attacks on lawful military targets. And even then, that is supposed to be given substantial weight. Um, the, The deaths of civilians is one of the things that international humanitarian law seeks to limit and constrain. Um, and the whole object, the whole enterprise really is to kind of channel military activities towards military objectives and limit that collateral damage to civilians. If you were to see you know, Hamas actively operating in the West Bank, maybe that would change things in terms of the actual elements of groups that are participating in hostilities there. Israel might have an argument to say, well, okay, this group we know is strategically coordinating with Hamas. They've entered this active conflict. Um, that means that we don't have to wait for them to show that they're hostile to us. We know they are because they're part of this group, and that makes them lawful military targets because they're part of this existing conflict. Or if it's a group operating independently, Israel might say, well, we've come under attacks of this group where we believe attacks are imminent enough that it rises to the level of an armed conflict warning, an armed conflict response. And we have a separate sort of armed conflict with this other group that may look a lot like the Gaza conflict, but it's a separate sort of enterprise. But those are the sorts of relationships that if they exist, exist with you know very limited groups of actors in the West Bank. I don't know if we have a real sense they exist in a substantial numbers yet, although again, those could develop at a certain point. Um, if you think about the number of groups that were determined by the US government to become kind of co-belligerents of al-Qaeda over the years because they saw strategic advantages of allying themselves uh, with al-Qaeda at different points. And all of a sudden, our armed conflict expanded to new geographic areas. That could happen here, at least in the eyes of the Israelis, if not in the eyes of others in the national community. But until even if you do, that doesn't change the status of civilians in the West Bank, which appears to be the vast majority of the people there. And no amount of conflict in Gaza justifies or changes their status, what is supposed to be a very protected status as civilians. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service 
back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So Scott, on, on the protected status still, if you zoom out maybe whenever this war is over, if it ends, do you think that what's happening right now will be something that international courts are going to be looking at in terms of what Israel, the Israeli government did or did not do to prevent or sufficiently respond to in terms of settler violence? It very well might be. Uh, you know, we know the ICC is actively looking into uh, kind of Israel-Palestine conflict generally. They have an investigatory matter there. We've seen commissions of experts, committees of experts, and other similar investigatory bodies be assigned by the UN Human Rights uh, Council or other bodies in the United Nations system, sometimes even kind of on a, a multilateral, bilateral basis to look into these matters and publish reports and analyses of them. I have no doubt some of those will be forthcoming on various aspects of this conflict at some point. The basic problem you run into here is that those voices have been substantially discredited among Israelis. Uh, Israelis uh, and and Dan and Haith, please, please disagree with me on this if, if you disagree, but my strong sense from speaking to a lot of Israelis over the last 10 or 20 years of working uh, on aspects of this issue is that they generally see the UN system as as 
it's kind of stacked against them uh, as being embedded by a lot of people who uh, have, whether it's anti-Semitic views or views that are essentially far too sympathetic with the Palestinians and reject legitimate security and other concerns of the Israeli state. And so they tend to view these reports not as neutral assessments, but as uh, political attacks uh, on their leadership, on the decisions, on their military. And I think that's how these are likely to be perceived. This conflict is different. It's different of a scale than prior conflict over Gaza or prior incidents that have been the subject of these reports. Um, So maybe like the Lebanon invasion of the 1980s, which I think even in Israel ended up having a real domestic repercussions about saying, maybe we did some things here that cross the Rubicon that could happen here. Um, But that would make it an exception to the usual pattern, which has been these reports are issued. Much of the international community takes them very seriously. Activists and advocates take them very seriously. The Israelis completely reject them, often offer counter arguments um, that are very legally sophisticated, but embrace kind of minority views of international legal issues, or otherwise kind of make legitimate, certain legitimate and certain somewhat questionable criticisms to reach the conclusion that these reports are ungrounded. And frankly, the United States, uh, and to a lesser degree, a lot of European states ultimately say, well, you know, there may have been some things that happened here, but they don't fundamentally change the relationship. And so those degrees of scrutiny don't really make that big a difference. And I don't think the ICC is likely to get jurisdiction over any of these Israeli soldiers or politicians or anybody who might be um, subject to these sorts of things. Maybe it's different for Palestinians, honestly, but I I think the Israelis are too hard-nosed and sharp-elbowed to have enough international eyes that that's really unlikely arising out of the ICC. Um, So I I think that will also end up being a largely documentary and symbolic effort as opposed to uh, something that leads to real accountability in the form of a prosecution. Um, you know, you, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Scott, uh, on this one. Um, though I would add just two, I mean, two points. Uh, first of all, to emphasize that if it's going to be anything that will have an impact, it's what happens in Israel domestically. And already we're seeing in Israel a debate on, uh, you know, was Israel diverting too much uh, of its security uh, assets into the West Bank and therefore leaving Gaza uh, vulnerable? Questions about, uh, you know, are these uh, settler violence? Is this something that is endangering Israel's own security? And ultimately, I think this is going to be one of the major points in the kind of post-war, uh, post-mortem that Israel will have to go uh, into three its own uh, commissions of inquiry, uh, uh, etc. I mean, this has become now a topic of mainstream Israeli conversation in ways that it was not a month ago. Second, I would say, yes, you're absolutely right when it comes to international tribunals, but one thing that has been worrying Israeli uh, military for a while is the possibility of prosecution in uh, uh, domestic courts, especially in some European countries. So that's another thing I would keep an eye on. Well, so on the changing kind of points of view internally, domestically, Gaith, that you just mentioned, How do you think that factors into the succession plan and governance plan thoughts that may or may not be swirling? And what is your sense of the way that the Israelis want to handle the post-war West Bank versus Gaza versus East Jerusalem governance plan? In a general point, I think what this war has done is it has moved the Palestinian issue. Uh, which until now in Israel, really since in the last decade, has been an issue that most Israelis have managed uh, to just basically tune off. And it became something that's really only the military and intelligence folks deal with it because of security reasons and the settler community because of ideological reasons. I think it's coming go, go back now into center stage in the Israeli debate. Will it be uh, in a positive way? Will it be in a negative way? I don't know, but it cannot be ignored anymore. Now, when it comes to the Israeli approach to uh, the issue of succession in the Palestinian Authority, honestly, in many ways, it's irrelevant. Ultimately, Palestinian succession will be a function of domestic Palestinian uh, politics, uh, politics which are today, by the way, very broken. Yet there is very little that the Israelis uh, can do to shape uh, that. You know, they can change policies, maybe become more forward-leaning in the West Bank to empower more moderate potential successors, but these are on the uh, on the margins. I think one area of interest that we're starting to see being discussed is, you know, as people look at what's going to happen post-war uh, uh, in Gaza, itself. I think there's a growing realization that uh, the weakness of the Palestinian Authority, the ineffectiveness of the Palestinian Authority has ultimately created a vacuum 
you know, as we talk about what's after Gaza, the most obvious uh, solution was is to bring the Palestinian Authority. Yet it's too discredited, too weak, and now we're looking at very convoluted other options. So any post-Gaza architecture, I believe, will have to deal with issues of reforming and rehabilitating the Palestinian uh, Authority. What this means exactly, we don't know. These are conversations in their very early stages. But I think right now we cannot just basically pretend that uh, things will continue going uh, as normal. We will continue pretending that there's a functioning Palestinian Authority and just basically put this in the back burner. So I expect more of an international uh, uh, push to do basically reform the Palestinian Authority. This will, of course, have to tackle the issue of uh, of succession, but it has to be done in a wider context. If I can add to these points, a constant Israeli security fear, again, before October 7th, was that Hamas would emerge as the dominant force on the West Bank. And part of the cooperation between Israel and the Palestinian Authority there uh, was that they shared a common enemy. And for Abbas, this was a political rival. And for Israel, it was seen as a, a terrorist threat. Given the weakness of the Palestinian Authority, I believe the Israeli discourse is going to double down on that fear. The sense that Hamas may be able to surprise Israel, that uh, intelligence might not be able to provide warning, that Hamas has more credibility among Palestinians because it conducted this attack, and perhaps the Palestinian Authority has less because it is trying to uh, continue to work with Israel despite the devastation in Gaza. And so I think the occupation is likely to become uh, even more intense with Israel worried that if there's any laxity, that it'll be Hamas that benefits from it. And this can show up in a variety of ways, including uh, pushing the Palestinian Authority to conduct uh, even more arrests, there being more checkpoints. I think the ability of Palestinians to go back and forth into uh, areas of Israel or other Jewish populated areas um, outside um, the kind of traditional Israeli areas uh, will be even more restricted. So I think it's going to be a much harsher situation. And to be clear, it was already pretty tough before all this, but I think uh, what has happened has taken Israeli worries and uh, magnified them tremendously. And it'll be very hard for anything to provide reassurance to Israelis after this. So Dan, on, on this point, if there are increased Israeli pressures vis-a-vis -vis the PA to do more on uh, regulating the West Bank, and that is not again, sufficient to kind of prevent actual bloodshed and like official war spilling into the West Bank. Do you think that that will then have another cyclical effect on Hamas and what they do in Gaza? And, and can you just talk about how that kind of spills into the dynamics of the war overall? So I'm not sure it will affect Gaza directly, given the intensity of the Israeli response there and how Hamas um, has to confront it and focus on that primarily. And I think even if violence significantly increases in the West Bank, Hamas still has the day-to-day -day of dealing with the Israeli army. The caveat there, though, is it would uh, validate for Hamas its tactics. Right? They would say, look, the West Bank was quiescent. It was controlled by a quizzling of Israel. But now, because of our attacks, Palestinians have awakened. They've risen up. And so from their point of view, their methods would be validated. In addition, this uh, problem, uh, and Gaith alluded to this early on, could lead to the collapse of the Palestinian Authority. Right? The Palestinian Authority is weak. It has legitimacy problems because there is a potential succession uh, dispute in the uh, coming years. Uh, leaders may go in different directions or try to posture themselves in different ways to gain popular support. And so this is a potential crisis for the Palestinian Authority. Um, I don't want to predict that it's going to collapse completely. I don't think that's necessarily true. But I think uh, that the possibility at least needs to be considered. And, and, you know, I, just to add to this, I think uh, 
a breakdown in the West Bank, first of all, would divert Israeli military and security uh, assets from uh, focusing on Gaza and on the northern uh, front, but it also will have uh, implications for Arab public opinion as well, particularly in terms of spillover into Jordan. Jordan has a very long uh, border with the West Bank and with uh, Israel. And so that is an area of concern. I am actually on the issue of collapse of Palestinian authority. I'm a bit more worried than you, Dan. It has already been very, very weak. Uh, There are very intentional efforts, whether by Hamas or by, as I mentioned earlier, members of the Israeli cabinet to collapse it. And I would just say that if it collapses, it will not only create a governance and security vacuum in the West Bank, it will also, I would argue, create a diplomatic vacuum. You know, uh, since really the Oslo Accords uh, in the early 1990s, we have been operating, we as the international community and the region, has been operating around a diplomatic architecture that talks about a two-state solution and a recognized address for the Palestinian people, that's the Palestinian Authority and the PLO. A collapse of the PLO will create a complete diplomatic uh, vacuum in the sense, and in many ways we'll go back to the 1980s and 1970s where there is no framework uh, governing the international relations with the Palestinians or the Palestinian-Israeli relations. So such a uh, possibility would actually, I believe, be extremely uh, disruptive, not only on the ground, but in terms of how you conduct diplomacy in that whole region. I couldn't agree with that more. I think it's worth taking one step maybe further back and understand what this pending crisis, I I think, probably does mean or at least might mean, which is really the breaking point for what has been the model of the political consensus around Israeli security and this whole issue set for for many years, centered on the two-state solution and a lot built on top of that. As I mentioned earlier, the two-state solution is really the framework by which Israel has justified its handling of populations in the West Bank and in Gaza and in East Jerusalem. It is this idea that this is what our current status quo, which they do not have a full allotment of rights that matches most human rights standards, um, that matches most expectations of the international community of what we think people who live in a country should be, should receive. It's because these territories were transitional. This arrangement was transitional. The whole idea is that this is a temporary deprivation of rights that is necessary because we are on track to reestablish rights in the form of a separate nation state as part of the two-state solution. That has been under stress for many, many years, at least a decade. And I think really, if you talk to a lot of folks in the region, um, particularly a lot of Palestinians, for the last five to 10 years, many of them have felt that the two-state solution is dead. But that's there's a reason why so many Western diplomats, so many Americans in particular, are still wedded to it. Because when that goes away, you are stuck in a really, really difficult situation about how do we reconcile our support for Israel with the status quo in these territories as a legal matter and as an ethical and principled matter. If you no longer think this is a passing phase, a transitory phase, then you are accepting a status quo where people have substantially lower levels of rights uh, and entitlements than they are supposed to be entitled to by international law and frankly by a lot of people's kind of ethical compasses. That is a really bitter pill to swallow and I think is going to become, if if that becomes the reality that Israel feels like it has to kind of accept because it can no longer trust a Palestinian authority, it can no longer trust any degree of autonomy, uh, the last vestiges of a state uh, collapse um, or, or a kind of neo-state collapse or become less trustworthy. Um, and we see Israel asserting itself much more directly and asserting its security interests without really much sense of economic or political autonomy um, among Palestinians or incorporating them into the Israeli polity in any meaningful way. That's just a a reality that's going to be really hard for a lot of the international community to wrap their head around. And we're already seeing sign of it really straining the U.S.-Israeli relationship. We have to bear in mind the Democratic Party platform during this last presidential election adopted a position that very expressly said, we support a two-state solution. And if we don't have a two-state solution, then we need to have an outcome that gives Palestinians uh, their, you know, essentially their rights uh, treats them as equal citizens. Now, what exactly that means is a lot of gray area. It's going to take a long time to get there. But this crisis really is, is, uh, you know, in my view, potentially the breaking point for what has been the whole framework that's been governing a lot of diplomatic engagement around this issue for a very long time, legally and politically. And what comes in its wake, as Gaith has already suggested, is a lot of chaos and a lot of uh, behavior that, particularly on the part of the Israeli state, if if we're being honest, that I think is going to be 
really, really hard for the international community to, to wrap its head around. And that includes corners of it, like the United States, that have traditionally been among Israel's biggest supporters. Right. I mean, especially in light of the what you just brought up about the breakdown of the the two-state solution, especially in context of a potential dissolution of the PA, I have to ask a very, what might seem like a ridiculous question, but is earnest, would the international community, and especially the U.S., accept a Hamas-led Palestinian governance structure, do you think? I mean, I can't tell you about the U.S. and things do change, even though today uh, Hamas is a designated terror organization, not only in the U.S., but also in Europe and also Mm -hmm. among many Arab countries. Uh, So that in itself is a huge hurdle. But I can tell you what I believe Hamas is thinking. And Hamas is, you know, thinking that exactly that they will use this in order to basically take over the PLO become the uh, only address uh, for the Palestinians uh, in international uh, relations and basically bide their time until the international community comes around to them. They actually are trying to replicate in some ways the playbook of the old Palestine Liberation Organization uh, approach. You know, the PLO, uh, since uh, its foundation in the 60s, has been considered as a terror organization, but ultimately the world came around and accepted to engage it. So I think this is the Hamas uh, playbook and their own thinking is... If we're the last man standing, and it will only be men in this particular case, uh, if they're the last man standing, uh, uh, then the world will have no option but to turn around. I would say this is not so easy. And by the way, not only in the international community, I cannot overestimate the amount of uh, unease and animosity that uh, regional uh, governments have towards Hamas. At the end of the day, uh, they see them as an extension of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is anathema in the Gulf, in Egypt, uh, etc. And some truly look at them as a terrorist organization. And even today, a country like Saudi Arabia would look at the Gulf, at, at the Gaza war as partly being motivated to undermine Saudi's own interests. So it will be very hard for the region to swallow that, let alone the international community. I will say from a legal perspective, that that's a difficult question. Um, you know, recognizing a government is something that actually a lot of states treat as highly discretionary um, when it's done, particularly through abnormal processes. So you think of the Taliban's experience since um, seizing control of Afghanistan in 2021, you know, they have effectively controlled the country. They they operate in many ways as its government, de facto government at least, but they do not they're not recognized by anyone. And that is in part because of their human rights record, in part because of they came to power through violence, um, in part because they don't have a power sharing arrangement or make any effort to kind of share power or have any sort of representative process. That is something a lot of the international community wants to see. And so they withhold formal recognition. Uh, although over time and increasingly, there is going to be, and, and, and we're already seeing signs of it, pressure to say, we don't recognize them as the government, but we're going to have to treat them as the government, at least for certain limited purposes. And I think eventually, frankly, you're going to see a slow, quiet transition to just recognizing them years down the line, as we ha- saw happening with the revolutionary government in Iran in, in the 80s. The key point here, though, is that usually democratic processes are the thing that leads to legitimacy. So if Hamas is is actually elected, that, that raises a real problem. Um, as we see in Afghanistan, like you can have a governing entity, a governing regime that is subject to massive massive sanctions uh, related to terrorism. And for international governments sometimes have to find ways to interact with them because the humanitarian consequences otherwise would be devastating. Um, and I suspect you would end up seeing something like that for the simple, at least of the international community, if that regime actually stayed in place. That said, the Israelis, uh, Gulf states, and others might see reason to try and undermine it more actively, you know, query whether that is internationally legally permissible. I would guess probably not, depending on how exactly it's framed, but that may not stop anyone. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, the, the problem goes away. But for the broader national community, it's not prohibitive. And if you have an election and that's the result, it's actually kind of hard to walk away from unless there's like a legal reason why uh, those entities were, were not elected. Um, doesn't mean sanctions go away, but it does mean you might have to find some way to work with them, or at least it has in other cases. Yeah, and it it just does seem like as this war goes on, Hamas is gaining more and more popular support, maybe not in crazy numbers, but sympathetic support from from Palestinian folks. So it'll be difficult. For what it's worth, I I don't know. I mean, I'd be welcome to Anna Geith's view on this, but like my sense is that I don't think necessarily the risk is Hamas itself, you know, suddenly surging into an election because I don't think if it looks like they're likely to win, the election will be structured in a way that they're Mm -hmm. actually able to participate. Uh, particularly in the West Bank. But I suspect that the bigger challenge actually is if you find groups that 
are more hostile to the status quo, more hostile to Israel, uh, more strident, perhaps are more associated with violence in ways that might look more like Hamas uh, or share part of that political agenda, and that you see those parties benefiting electorally and perhaps even having some some ties ideologically or otherwise to Hamas. But I, I doubt it's as quite as straightforward as saying, you know, Hamas is going to be allowed to run in this election, it will win. If that's ever the expected outcome, I don't think you will see agreement on an election framework moving forward with international support or certainly Israeli support. Um, but Dan and Guy, please correct me if, if you disagree. I mean, what I would add to what you said is the fact, I mean, what we've seen in the previous rounds of fighting is that, yes, Hamas during the fighting gains a lot of popularity, normal uh, rally around the flag kind of dynamics. Yet uh, after the wars, there's always a reckoning and its popularity always uh, tends to uh, dip. Now, of course, you know, one can go back to the old joke you don't have to swim faster than the shark you have to swim faster than the next person and unless uh, you have an alternative a new clean Palestinian authority then uh, Hamas could still win and here I agree completely that uh, I don't see an election being held if uh, there's an assumption that Hamas will win I would just add one additional point tangential point maybe what I found very interesting uh, if I zoom out from the Palestinians and look at other Arab uh, arenas and other Arab public opinions I'm seeing actually more criticism in kind of you know traditional Arab media, etc., of Hamas. So I'm not sure that uh, overall Arab public opinion uh, has been supporting Hamas. And while this might not have direct impact on the uh, uh, views of the Palestinian public, it does shape the kind of regional environment and the narrative around Hamas and uh, what it's been doing. So I wouldn't be uh, looking so straightforward as kind of, you know, Hamas will emerge uh, politically stronger, though, of course, it's always a possibility. Well, in the meantime, I know we're running out of time. So I want to end with what you would recommend to policymakers about um, how, how to manage the West Bank and how to think about it in terms of the, the Israel-Hamas war broadly. So I think the short-term goal is to try to keep the situation as stable as possible. So let me give one short-term recommendation and one longer-term recommendation. Um, in the short-term Israel has got to stop the settler violence. And there are kind of broader questions about Israeli policy and use of violence uh, against Palestinian demonstrators, but there is no conceivable justification for allowing the settler violence. And this is um, something that understandably causes tremendous outrage in the Palestinian community, and it discredits the Palestinian Authority government. So the ally Israel needs is discredited by allowing this violence. In the longer term, if there is a negotiation over Gaza, the Palestinian Authority needs to be part of it in some way. It needs to be able to regain some credibility as an entity that matters. Otherwise, voices in the Palestinian uh, broader community that say negotiation is worthwhile become further discredited. Um, Israelis need to make it sure that the Hamas model, which is violence and resistance, doesn't get further support at the negotiating table, even implicitly, by excluding Palestinian voices that favor negotiation. If I can stay on the same themes, and I would say in the short term, in addition to what uh, Dan said, I would say two things. Israel, I think, needs to refrain uh, from any action that does not have an immediate pressing security uh, uh, justification uh, that could uh, inflame uh, uh, the situation further. For example, you know, uh, uh, there is no need to conduct uh, home demolitions uh, right now. There is no need to conduct uh, some of these uh, uh, military things that just do not have an immediate uh, pressing uh, security uh, necessity. That's one. Two, I think Israel should refrain from any action that would weaken the Palestinian Authority directly. Specifically here, I'm talking about, uh, you know, uh, re refusing to pay to do the monthly transfers, to money transfers, etc. This is not a time to score political points uh, Right now, the priority should be to stabilize the West Bank and to stabilize the Palestinian Authority. On the longer term, in addition to what Dan said, I would say, look, the Palestinian Authority is discredited not only because of the failure of modern, of diplomacy and negotiations, even though, of course, this is the major part. Uh, it's also discredited because of its own corruption, poor governance, and lack of, uh, you know, the closing political space there. And I think any post-Gaza war, uh, any post-Gaza scenario should not focus only on Gaza, but should really revive the idea of pushing towards reforming the Palestinian Authority and uh, pushing it uh, to uh, open the political space. And I would even add that uh, 
you know, we should seriously think whether or not the current Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, would be an asset or a liability in such a, uh, in such a process. I agree with all of that. I don't really have much to add. The only thing I'll say is that in, in the long term, there needs to be a positive vision about how to reach an outcome um, and a process for reaching it that is different from the status quo entering into this conflict before the October 7th massacre. That was a status quo that was unstable, and and that massacre and things that have come after have demonstrated that it doesn't serve as really security interests very effectively, that it causes a, a lot of problems domestically, internationally, and it is essentially, I think, creating a situation that is you know drifting towards a potential crisis that we're beginning to see escalation towards at this point. If you get out of that, you need to find at least steps or a process towards a greater status quo that is actually has a positive vision for the parties involved, whether that's a two-state solution without something else, I don't know. I think that's the real challenge these days. But without that, uh, returning to the status quo is just returning to a situation that's already proven inadequate and unstable. And it's just setting the stage, I fear, for another crisis in the future. Well, great. Thank you again, Scott, Dan, and Gabe for, for joining us. And I'm sure we'll talk to you all again soon. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schellen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.